Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. That's right. It is real history that we're talking about right here. Real history every day. Right off the pages of history, as we say. It's hard to to do better than reading the history right off the pages. It's uh, irrefutable history. When I'm reading a letter from George Washington or Benjamin Franklin, you can't deny that it's history. It is what it is. I mean, even if their facts are a little bit inaccurate in the letter, certainly their opinions are never inaccurate because they're, they're their opinions. And their their thoughts and feelings and and all the rest of it those those are all very real. We read the letters because that's the best way to study the founding fathers. And I'm trying to bring you the best educational podcast on the founding fathers, and I really hope you agree with me on that. I really really do. And I hope you find this podcast useful. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here, and I hope you enjoyed the last episode and all the previous episodes as well. We're going to try to bring you a great episode here today as well. And also, I wanted to make mention of, uh, again, the Patreon podcast that I do. This episode, this podcast here, of course, is free wherever you download the podcast, but if you want to support uh, my podcasting endeavors over on Patreon, I have another podcast over there. Subscription, of course, um, but that's, uh, that's kind of the whole point uh, to supporting the podcast. So with the Patreon side, it's over on patreon.com slash podcasts with Roman. And I'm getting ready to drop a podcast over there. It may already be dropped by the time you listen to this podcast, or it might drop uh, a day later or so. It's going to be about Veterans Day. And I don't want to talk a lot about Veterans Day here exactly on this episode of the podcast. I'll leave that to the Patreon side of things. But I'll, I'll, I want to recognize Veterans Day coming up here. And I don't know if there's going to be a Wednesday podcast episode. So I want to do it on this uh, Sunday edition of the uh, the podcast episode. This one should drop Sunday. And uh, the Wednesday podcast, eh, if I can get it up, I will. If I, if I can't because of time constraints, I ran a little bit behind doing my research for this episode and the next one. And so it may be that I have to do something else for Wednesday that's not quite as lengthy. Uh, I would like to give you some content on Wednesday just to uh, just to let you know that I'm still I'm still working on everything. But I'm not. I'm not. Ju- I'm not just not working on the podcast here. It's sometimes the research takes longer than I think it will, and and the editing and all the rest of it. Again, I'm a one man band here, and I'm a working man. I have a job, full time job, on top of this podcast. Uh, so this podcast is really done in my free time when I'm when I'm available. So, but anyway. Uh, I got a I got a Veterans Day podcast over on Patreon that's going to drop, but I want to recognize it here just briefly. And that is to say, you know, it's important that we recognize Veterans Day and all of the people who fought for this country from the Revolutionary War all the way up through the present day. And the Army has changed a lot, the military, the Marines, it's all, it's changed a lot since the beginning, obviously. I mean, from marching barefoot in the snow, I'm not making that up, by the way, from marching barefoot in the snow, carrying muskets, and wondering... If you're going to lose this war and the British are going to hang you for treason all the way up to today where we probably have the United States that is has the most well-equipped military in the history of the world. That's quite a jump from being a ragtag group of farmers and townsfolk to being a very professional and well-trained military. And the honor of the military, I believe, is still intact in a great many respects, not in every respect— but in most respects, it certainly is. And that's a that's an amazing thing for 250 years of history. 
It really is. And I was thinking about something that we can all do to honor the veterans because, you know, there is this concept of, you know, to defend this country, you know, we can we send troops overseas to fight the wars and so on and so forth. And obviously we have to, troops deployed closer to the United States to defend the country and in case the worst should happen. But everybody has a responsibility to defend this country. And sometimes it's as simple as educating ourselves and educating each other, because an uneducated population is completely unable to defend the country, and to defend the country from bad ideas. There's a lot of bad ideas in this country, and I'll give you an example of this. They really pervade from this concept of, there are a lot of people who really do believe, and we talked about this when we talked about the Declaration of Independence, the right to pursue happiness. There are a lot of people who believe in this country that they have the right to happiness. I keep bringing it up because it's a phenomenon in the United States. People really do believe they have the right to be happy. And they don't. Uh, you can pursue happiness your entire life and be completely miserable. And that doesn't mean you failed. And it doesn't mean that somebody trampled on your rights. It could just mean that you didn't quite get there. And some people never really do. There's nothing really wrong with that except that it's unfortunate that you never really got there. I certainly would hope that everybody would get there, but this, this, you know, the world isn't fair. Some people have a really hard time with that, so what they do is, is they come up with a lot of really bad ideas to try to create a framework in this country that's going to make them happy. They don't care about anybody else being happy, they just care about themselves being happy. And that's not the purpose of this country. It's not the purpose of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States. And educating yourself and others about that would go a long way to defending this country from really bad ideas. That's kind of the, uh, the home front edition to, of defending this country. And you want to honor the veterans, that's a really good way to do it. Just make sure that their sacrifice isn't wasted because of really bad ideas here domestically. And I'll tell you one place you can start. If you want to do something on Veterans Day to, to honor the troops, maybe if you have children, educate your children on, just briefly, you know, age appropriate. You, this, this conversation is going to differ depending on how old your children are, but tell them that, you know, this country is here for a reason, and it's because people fought for it. And not everybody in the world is free. Not everybody in the world has freedom. A lot of people in the, in the world are starving and they're miserable. And that's because their governments are terrible and they're probably their rights are being oppressed in some particular kind of way by some group of people, either the government or the or some warlord or or who knows what. It's not it's not it's it's usually that. You know, most most of most oppression and most famine in this in this world is created by government, by the way. And if you don't believe me on that, just peel back the layers and really look at what's going on. Um, most of it is created by government. And the government that we have was built by the founders to make sure that that never happened to the extent possible. And if you want to teach them something about this country again, just tell them that this country's here for a reason. It was fought for. People did sacrifice something for this country. And teach them the Bill of Rights. Just start reading that stuff to them. Say, hey, you know, we have the free... This, these are the freedoms that we have. And this is why we have them. Like, when you're talking about the... The First Amendment, which is obviously a really big one, there's a number of rights in there. It's not just one thing. It's, you know, the right to religion, speech, and so on and so forth. It's all in there. Tell them why each one of those are important. Why is it important that the, that the government not make any law respecting the establishment of a religion? And why is it important that people have the free exercise thereof? Why is, why is that important? Even if you're not a religious person. I mean, that's the mark of a really great American, by the way. Somebody who's absolutely not religious, but can, but can stand up and really articulate why it's important that those rights are there. 
defending rights that you don't really claim for yourself. You don't have a religion, so you don't claim that right, but you know it's important for other people. See, that separates you from all those other selfish people who are just trying to make this country something that makes them happy. That makes you something a little bit more informed, more educated than them. But go ahead, do stuff like that for Veterans Day, and I, I encourage you to do so. It's, it's a fantastic way to, uh, again... Educate your children, educate your friends, family. If they're knowledgeable about where this country comes from and why these rights are important, they'll probably appreciate a lot more the people who fought for it. I know I do. I, I mean, as far as like the, the veterans who fought in the Revolutionary War, they're long gone. I mean, they've been gone for a long time. But I tell you, I appreciate everything they did. Those veterans had it. They had it more difficult than probably any other any other group of veterans in the history of the country. They they had it pretty bad. I mean, again, just very ill-equipped. Didn't know what they were doing at first had no reason to believe that they were ever going to succeed, but they did it anyway. That's pretty pretty spectacular when you think about it. I uh, I marvel at that. I really do. It's it's a fantastic group of guys. It really was. Those men, they uh they gave it everything they had and they built a country. That's impressive. Remember that for Veterans Day. So with that said, if you want to hear my longer discussion about Veterans Day, go on over to Patreon. The link is in the description box to this podcast. Uh, but thank you for joining me on this episode of the podcast. This is episode number 10, and we're going to talk about taxation without representation today. And I went back and I decided to pull up a lot of the foundational framework for where the Founding Fathers got it in their heads that they had the right to not be taxed unless they were represented and that Parliament did not represent them. Instead, they were represented by their various assemblies here here in the colonies, when it was the colonies. And I'm going to go through step-by-step step a very basic, and, and I'm sure there's going to be some, hist some university history person out there who listens to this podcast at some point and thinks that my explanation is going to be fairly simplistic. Well, understand that this is not... I'm not writing my doctoral thesis here. This, that's not what this podcast is. This podcast is me going over on a fairly basic level without spending 10 episodes talking about taxation without representation. Uh, just giving you a one episode run through or maybe a two episode, depends on how, how long we go on this podcast episode, but it's me just going through the basics and I'm going to go straight to the documents and we're going to read right from the documents. I'm not going to make any of this stuff up. Somebody might disagree with me and my, my inferences based on what I read. That's fine. Reasonable people can disagree. But we're going to go right to the documents, so we're going to talk about that. So, we're going to talk about the origin of taxation without representation and how the Founding Fathers were justified in their beliefs. Where did they... Because these people, we as we've studied over the last few podcasts, these people were very, very certain that they had the right to be represented if they were going to be taxed. And there's frequent references to their constitution and their rights and so on and so forth. We're going to talk about where all this comes from. What were the Founding Fathers talking about? We're going to get into that. So, I hope you're ready for a fantastic episode, a very educational episode. You know, by the time this, this episode is done, you are going to know more about the foundational arguments that the Founding Fathers made about taxation without representation. You're going to know more about it than 99% of the rest of this country. I firmly believe that, because frankly speaking, most people in this country haven't the faintest clue what taxation without representation really means, and that's a that's the fault of, frankly speaking, the education system, if nothing else. So we're going to fix that. You know, we're going to, you and me together, we are going to fix this thing, and we're going to, we're going to go, and we're going to dig into this material, and it's going to be fantastic. So put your seatbelt on, and get ready for a fantastic episode episode. Let's get started on that right now. All right, here we go. We're in it now. Taxation without representation. And, you know, the purpose of a lot of these 
documents and rules and laws as they came down through the ages to try to put some kind of a buffer in between the people who are being taxed and the despot, which is another word for tyrant, uh, the despot who was constantly trying to tax them into oblivion. It was really born out of this tendency of, of despots and dictators to be drunk on power. Um, just absolutely drunk on power, you know, running around taking whatever the, whatever the heck they darn well please out of people's pockets. You know, there's a lot of effort made over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia to try to stop this. Um, and in, uh, I guess they couldn't just come up with a, an Alcoholics Anonymous equivalent for kings and despots who are drunk on power and just send them off to rehab. I, I wish it were that easy. Uh, just, just, you know, just take the king and just kind of say, hey, buddy, you're going to rehab. You're drunk on power. What? What are you talking about? Of course, there'd be denial, of course. I'm not drunk on power. Uh, yeah, you are. So instead of doing that, uh, a lot of times what they tried to do was either come up with these documents, laws and regulations, constitutions to try to try to keep things in order, or frankly speaking, they took the despot out back and they killed him. It's, it's just the way it was. Unfortunately, these uh, these things usually don't end well when, when people finally get worked up enough that they get sick and tired of it. So in an effort to try to avoid killing the despot, what we have is a series of documents that we're going to go over, and... These are going to enlighten us as to what the Founding Fathers were talking about when they said their constitution had been violated, their rights had been violated, their, 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 old, their ancient rights had been violated, so on and so forth. So let's go. The first document we're going to talk about here is the Magna Carta. Now, some of you may have heard of the Magna Carta, some of you maybe not. Interesting story about the Magna Carta, actually. There was a copy of the Magna Carta, obviously a, an old copy of the Magna Carta, because it was quite, it must have been quite valuable. They, uh, they actually, during World War II, they actually stored it, as I understand it, in Fort Knox, Kentucky, because there was the concern that Britain would either be, you know, bombed in such a way the document might not survive, or it could be invaded and the document taken by the, uh, the Germans, and who knows what they would have done with it. They actually shipped a copy of it over here to the United States, and there were other things, I think, that, that were sent over here, too, with that. I can't even remember exactly what it was, but I know the Magna Carta was one of them. Just FYI on that. Very valuable document for any number of reasons, but um, it goes all the way back to 1215. Now, think about that for a second. 1215. That was like 800 years ago, right? That's a long time that people have been talking about these ancient rites of taxation without representation. And that's yeah, that's what you're going to hear in the Magna Carta now. Just know that when we're talking about some of these more ancient documents like the Magna Carta, they're not always talking about the same kinds of taxes like what we think about today. Similar in some respects, but not exactly the same thing. But that's not important because, again, some people, somebody out there, probably somebody who works in a university is going to pick this apart and they're going to be like, that's not what the Magna Carta was talking about. I tell you, the professors at the universities know that the Magna Carta was talking about something. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, I know, I've heard it all. But that's that's not my point. My, my point isn't that the Magna Carta was talking about the raising of revenue through an income tax like what we think about today in the United States when we think about income taxes and Social Security and all the rest of it. That That's, I, I know that's not what it's talking about, clearly. But that's not the point. The point is, is that there was some tax, a levy, a fee, an assessment, or in the wording of the Magna Carta, a scuttage that was that was imposed. And there was a, a desire amongst the people to put together some kind of a council or assembly or legislature or parliament or congress in between them and that levy. 
And let's and let's go through the terminology here real quick because there's gonna, I'm going to throw around a lot of words that all mean the same thing. So we think of we think in modern terms of legislature and Congress, the United States Congress and your state legislatures, right? Okay. There's a lot of words that mean the same thing. Parliament is basically the same thing. That's Britain's equivalent of our Congress, right? And assembly means the same thing. Council means the same thing. And in some cases, not in every case, and this is this gets confusing, but in some cases, court means the same thing. Because when we think court, we think a judiciary. We think a couple of judges, three judges, nine judges, one judge, something like that, sitting up in front of a courtroom. There's a jury over there, and a verdict is rendered. That's not what we're talking about here today when we, ta- when we say the word court more often than not. Mostly what we're talking about here is a kind of Congress, a council, so on and so forth. When you hear these words thrown around, just know that that's what we're talking about. So let's get started with the Magna Carta. I'm going to read this first section to you that pertains to scutage, uh, another word for a levy, a tax, an assessment, something owed to the local lord or despot. So let's go. Quote, no scutage or tax except by the general council. No scutage or aid shall be imposed in our kingdom unless by the general council of our kingdom except for ransoming our person, making our eldest son a knight, and once for marrying our eldest daughter. And for these there shall be paid no more than a reasonable aid, end quote. Now what is a, what is a scutage again? It's a type of levy that was, uh, or ta- you call it a tax, you can call it a levy, you can call it whatever you want. But any word that actually applies here. It is clearly some kind of a tax levied against an individual person by, in this case, probably the local lord for the purposes of some military services, I understand it. But it's not it's not applicable today. This is not something you're going to see today. But so so Roman, why on earth are you reading uh, these these concepts of scutage from out of the Magna Carta from 800 years ago? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you're setting up a framework here. There's a levy, aka a tax, aka a scutage, aka an assessment, whatever you want to call it. And these people are trying to put a council in between them and that assessment. You see where I'm going with this? It's pretty plain. It's going to become even more plain as we go along. There's a lot of this to come. Let's keep going with this. And, And keep in mind, the founders would have been aware of the Magna Carta. This is something that most people in the United States are not aware of today. Remember I said at the beginning of this podcast in the introduction that by the time this episode is done, you are going to know more about the origins of taxation without representation and the foundational con- the foundational arguments of the Founding Fathers than 99% of the rest of this country, the United States. And if you're outside this country, if you're, if you're in Europe or you're in the rest of the world, frankly speaking, I don't know. I don't know what you're taught overseas. Uh, I'm perfectly fine saying I don't know. You may be taught more in Europe, certainly about the Magna Carta, perhaps, or not, I don't know, but you may be taught more overseas about these kinds of things than we are here in the United States. In the United States, these concepts are largely forgotten. Why? I don't know. Uh, Because somebody has decided that it's not important anymore, which is unfortunate for the people of the United States. But keep in mind, the Founding Fathers would have been aware of this. They would have known about the Magna Carta and these arguments. This would have played into their mindset, this basic framework. Again, what we're talking about here out of the Magna Carta is a framework. Not the exact same thing that the Founding Fathers were talking about exactly, or certainly not the exact same kind of taxes, levies, or assessments that we have today. Continuing on, I quote, General counsel shall consent to assessment of taxes, and for holding the general counsel of the kingdom concerning the assessment of aids, except in three cases aforesaid, and for the assigning of scutages, we shall cause to be summoned the archbishops, bishops, abbots, end quote, etc., And it goes on a long list of people that they're going to call up for general counsel. 
And then it continues on, quote, For a certain day, that is to say 40 days before their meeting at least, and to a certain place, and in a letter, and in all letters of such summons, we will declare the cause of such summons, and summons being thus made, the business shall proceed on the day appointed, end quote. Why is this section important? Again, don't think about so much the exact kind of taxes or levies that they're that they're bringing forth because they're, they're, they change over time. You know, you go back 800 years, you're not going to find anything resembling the social security tax. And honestly, there's probably a fairly logical argument to be made that there should not be a social security tax today. But I'm going to save that debate for another time. That's uh, that, that goes on a whole other kind of podcast episode. But this is a framework. So what's the framework that we see here? They're going to call it, they're going to, again, quote, general counsel shall consent to assessment of taxes, end quote. That's it right there. That's, that's what we take out of this. Nothing more. And the framework behind it, quote, for a certain day, that is to say 40 days before their meeting at least, and to a certain place, and in all letters of such summons, we will declare the cause of such summons, and summons being thus made, the business shall proceed on the day appointed, end quote. They're talking about a very specific time and place for having this council. This is the beginning of the framework for a for a council to be assembled. This is important. This is organization. This is structural organization within a society for a kind of government structure. Very, very important. It may not seem that way. It may seem, oh, well, this is normal to us today. I'll tell you, 800 years ago, in much of the world, this is, honestly, even 300 years ago in much of the world, this is a foreign concept. Remember, I've, I've talked about it mostly on my uh, Patreon podcast about how the British Empire brought to the world a framework of government to people who didn't know how to govern themselves. And they certainly didn't know how to govern other people, except through barbarism more often than not. But the British brought a model for this. And this is valuable. People talk about imperialism in some negative context, and certainly there was a whole lot of negatives behind it, but if there was any kind of a positive that ever came from it, it was a government framework. And countries all over the world who used to call, who used to refer to themselves as colonies or under imperialist control, they took this kind of model, this kind of framework, and they, they made it their own. And they built their government on top of it. You see it all over the world, including in the United States. We took a British framework and we modified it. And made it better in some regards. So a lot of people in the United States would say. Some people in the United States would say, well, we made it worse. Okay, thank you for that. But, you know, the United States became the most successful country in the history of the world for a reason. It's not because we, we were worse than Great Britain as far as government goes. But anyway, let's continue on here. And again, focus on this as just the beginning framework as far as the Magna Carta is concerned. We're just building a framework for something that's going to come later. Now, we're going to move all the way up, ladies and gentlemen, to the 1600s. Boy, we're going to go from 1215 with the Magna Carta, and we're going to cruise into the 1600s and in the mid-1600s in Great Britain. We're sticking with Great Britain here, all the way through for the most part, until we get to the colonies, of course. So I'm going to give you some background on the mid-1600s. There was a series of conflicts within Great Britain during this particular period of time, sometimes referred to as civil wars. There was some changeover in leadership, for lack of a better way of putting it, and a lot of the, some of this conflict, anyway, was, was a result of religious tensions, other things, but parliamentary tensions. But there was a, a desire on the part of a, a great many people in Britain at the time to, in order to end these conflicts and to keep them from happening again to create some kind of a framework again, similar to what we're talking about with the Magna Carta, for general councils, for parliament or assembly. And the document that we're going to go to for this is the 16, 
48, 49, roughly drafted, I believe, and originally in 1647, but it, it, it spans this time from 1647 to 1649, and it's called the Agreement of the People. And it was it has a lot of this similar language in it that that we heard in the Magna Carta, except obviously it's much more current because it's 1600s instead of the 1200s, obviously. So this is just 400 years ago. And I'm going to read a section of it here for you now. Quote, Having by our late labors and hazards made it appear to the world at how high a rate we value our just freedom, and God, having so far owned our cause as to deliver the enemies thereof into our hands, we do now hold ourselves bound in mutual duty to each other to take the best care we can for the future, to avoid both the danger of returning into slavish a slavish condition and the chargeable remedy of another war, end quote. Interesting. So they're talking about these wars they've been, they've been fighting, these conflicts within Britain in the mid-1600s. They want to, they obviously, they, they're saying they want to end it. They want to stop this thing from happening again. And, you know, when I read this this particular section, there's, there's a document that makes me feel very familiar with these concepts. Can you guess what that document may be? I'll read another, I'll quote some of this to you again. Quote, We value our just freedom, and God, having so far owned our cause as to deliver the enemies thereof into our hands, we do now hold ourselves bound in mutual duty to each other to take the best care we can for the future, end quote. Think, when you think future, think posterity, the word posterity, which is the, the language the Founding Fathers used. When they said the future, they said posterity, more often than not, in my opinion. It's this, this, this section here sounds like the Declaration of Independence in some respects. It really does. And it's not the same thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is a Declaration of Independence. I'm just, I'm just saying it sounds familiar. You know, when it says, you know, in mutual duty to each other, what does that sound like? It sounds like we pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, our sacred honor kind of thing. Sound familiar? And to take the best care we can for the future, when it says that, it sounds like they're they're talking about uh, posterity. It sounds very sounds very similar. And keep in mind again, the founding fathers would have been aware of this document and the slavish condition that they refer to. They say they want to uh, they 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 mention this quote to avoid both the danger of returning into a slavish condition. End quote. Again, they want some kind of a buffer in between themselves and some dictator or tyrannical parliament even. Uh, they're trying to build some kind of a framework that avoids these things and avoids these kinds of conflicts like what they've seen recently. Continuing on, quote, since therefore our former oppressions and not yet ended troubles have been occasioned either by want of frequent national meetings in council or by the undue or unequal constitution thereof or by rendering those meetings ineffectual, we are fully agreed and resolved, God willing, to provide that hereafter our representatives be neither left to an uncertainty for times, nor be unequally constituted, nor made useless to the ends for which they are intended, end quote. Wow. So they mention a, a series of problems here. Quote, by want of frequent national meetings in council, end quote. Now this, obviously, is a reference to, the, there's, there's an infrequent set for meetings or councils at this particular period of time. That's what they seem to indicate. Uh, they seem to say that there there is some need for more frequent national meetings and council. They're not meeting often enough to address the problems as they arise. Okay, so there's that. And then they, they go on and say that their representatives, quote, be neither left to an uncertainty for times, nor be unequally constituted, nor made useless to the ends for which they are intended, end quote. Interesting. So an uncertainty for times, in other words, they don't know they don't know when or when the council's going to meet. When when the heck are we going to meet? We don't know. Unequally constituted. That could be a 
disproportionate representation of some of some note, nor made useless to the ends for which they are intended. So there's possibly a structural problem within the actual council itself that keeps them from doing the business that they're constituted to actually do. Now, that could be some outside meddling. So think about that. But think about the basic, obviously, the, the basic grammar that we're using here. They, they say, quote, national meetings and council, end quote, and quote, representatives, end quote. Doesn't that sound like the, the Congress, the United States Congress? Sounds, sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? Same idea. National meetings and council, representatives. It's all really just sounds like the United States Congress. And again, this is in 1647 that this thing was formed up. This document that we're talking about, the United States Congress obviously came about quite some time later after the Constitution, 1787 roughly. So they're talking here of the prior problems of councils and assemblies. Uh, they're, they're either needed more frequently or more well-constituted assembly is needed. And they refer to themselves as being unequally constituted, uncertainty of timing, etc., these cons these these words they grab me uh, they grab my attention and this, there's a there's this key part at the end I want to touch on I mentioned it just a few moments ago quote nor made useless to the ends for which they are intended end quote so remember the Massachusetts government and the intolerable acts the the king tried to re to reorganize the representation in Massachusetts colony to make it more amenable to his desires in other words to make the the, the local assemblies there in Massachusetts more in line with his thinking, not necessarily the thinking of the people of Massachusetts. Is that not the same thing? Making an assembly useless to the ends for which it was intended? So if you go into a local assembly and you start changing the makeup of it and you start dictating the timing of it, which the king did, it's very possible you could create this very same kind of thing. You could make it useless for its purpose. And what's the purpose of a local assembly? It's to represent the people of Massachusetts. The king in Great Britain was trying to make the assemblies represent him and his interests, not the interests of the people. It was like introducing a foreign or distant entity into the process to control the local assembly. And, you know, foreign influence in a local assembly doesn't have to be another country and it doesn't have to be across the Atlantic Ocean. It could be a thousand miles away or 2,000 miles away. Because a local assembly to you, the listener of this podcast, and to me, could mean, it really just means your neighbors. You and your neighbors, by your vote, are, are to have some say in that local assembly. What happens when some foreign entity 2,000 miles away decides it wants to start mucking around in your local assembly? It's the same thing as what these people were writing about in 1647, and it's the same thing that was happening in the Intolerable Acts of 1774. Same exact thing. And I can tell you now, and believe me when I tell you this, or, or if you don't, start reading about these kinds of things. Every time a general assembly is constituted, or a local assembly is constituted, a general council, a parliament, a congress, a legislature, a court, somebody distant to that wants to control it. They're going to try to control it and manipulate it and take it away from you every single time. History tells us that, right? I mean, these people in 1647 were writing about it. It happened again in 1774 with the king in Massachusetts. You think it can't happen again? This has been happening since the Magna Carta. It's been happening since 1647 in these English civil wars. It's been happening since 1774. Over and over and over again and again and again. Without stop, without quit, without end. And here we are in the United States, and for all you folks international, there you are in your European Union, in your 
whichever country you may be in outside of Europe, be it India or be it Russia or be it wherever, you think somebody doesn't want to try to control any local assembly that you may have or local local uh, general council that you may have? You think somebody doesn't want to control that from outside to bend that local assembly towards their own desires? If you think that's not true, you probably ought to take another look at it. Remember, remember the story, you know, from earlier I spoke of, the king or the despot drunk on power. There's no rehab for these people, unfortunately, except for prison. There, there really isn't. And honestly, that's not much of a rehab for those folks. And rare is the day you actually send a despot to prison. More often than not, again, throughout history, they, they get murdered. Julius Caesar, I mean, perfect example of that, when he got stabbed on the Senate floor. I mean, what was that but trying to kill a despot in the making? They were very concerned about this. In Rome, they had they had dealt with despots and kings before, and they didn't want to deal with it again. Unfortunately, they weren't able to stop it. The, uh, the march toward despotism was insatiable in Rome at the time. And that was because the people had become uneducated. They had become ignorant to their rights, to how a government is supposed to be formed, and how dangerous the despot is, and how they always get drunk with power and reach out to control and to destroy. They forgot. They felt like the despot was their buddy. Everybody's good buddy, the despot down the street. You know, but the despot down the street is not everybody's good buddy. Never is, never will be. And these documents are telling you that. Listen to them. The letters from the Founding Fathers are telling you that. Listen to them. If you don't, you do it to your own destruction, your own detriment, and to your children's detriment. You're signing up your, your children to some, quote, slavish condition, end quote slavish condition. Don't do that to your children, for Pete's sake, and don't do it to your neighbors. Just don't. It's unproductive. It's unhealthy. It's unwise. So again, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you think you do you think this can't happen today? Because I tell you, most of the Ameri most of the people in the United States, I can, again, I can't speak for the people in, in Europe, although I can I can speculate from a distance that the, the people in Europe have the same problem that we do here in the United States. Most people in the United States don't really have any they walk about with seemingly not a care in the world when it comes to this kind of thing. Be cautious how you make your arguments and be cautious how you try to battle against this. How did these people try to battle against this problem? How, how was it fought with the Magna Carta? How was it fought in 1647? And how was it fought in 1774? The founding fathers and the people, the people in England in 1647 and all the rest of it, they didn't try to build a bigger tyrant to take out the other tyrant. What they tried to do in these writings anyway, as far as what they wrote, I'm just reading what they wrote. Of course, they may have, they, in some cases, they did other things. Let's, I'm just going to put that out there. But what they wrote here is they're trying to create a council to stand for the people controlled by their voters, in, a, in essence, the people that they're supposed to represent, to stand in between them and the despot, and to structure the council in such a way that the council itself does not become despotic. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like checks and balances? Interesting. How that framework goes all the way back to Magna Carta, and then eventually on to 1647, and so on and so forth. This is not, these weren't new concepts that the Founding Fathers were, were talking about, really. They were just trying to make them better. Trying to make it, because it hadn't worked. It kept not working. The despot kept growing. The despot kept getting greedy, kept getting drunk on power. And again, you can't just walk up to the guy and say, hey, you need to go to rehab. You're drunk on power. <laughs> he ain't going to go to rehab. They, they, they never do. So if you again, watch out for foreign influence in your general councils, your legislatures, your Congress, your assemblies, your courts, 
Watch out for foreign influence. And that, that word foreign influence doesn't mean a foreign government. It doesn't mean a foreign power overseas in some other country. More often than not, it means local generally. And these people who lived back in 1647 and eventually, of course, in seven, people, especially the people in 1774, were scared to death of that happening. And you should be too. If the Founding Fathers, wise as they were, and as intelligent and well-educated as they were in these ancient documents, were scared to death of this same thing happening again, why shouldn't you? You think you're immune to this kind of thing? You think the, the United States is immune to this kind of thing? That's rather naive to say, and there are some people who do believe that. I know the listeners of this podcast by now are probably, you know, on board with the concept that, you know, this can happen here. Because it seems to be happening over and over again throughout history. But some people, again, they just, they have this uh, blasé attitude, which is another way of saying their, their uh, ignorance is bliss. And they don't seem to think that this can happen again. Be cautious with all this. Big lessons to be had in this particular this particular document, these, this set of documents, really. And why do I ask these questions? Like, you know, uh, you know, do you think this can happen again, or do you think this can happen here? It's it, this podcast is supposed to be thought provoking. This podcast is not again. It's not a lecture series. I'm, there's a reason why I'm I'm not a university professor. Uh, I don't like to do lecture series, and I don't like to. Uh, not get responses back from the audience here. Uh, certainly, I welcome responses. That's that's largely what the uh, reviews to this podcast, and obviously over on the Patreon side of things, what the comments are about. It's about being able to have a discussion. You can ask you can ask me questions in return, or you can answer the questions that I'm asking you. Do you think this can happen here? I'm not asking for specific examples. I'm just asking generally. And this is a thinking man's podcast and a thinking woman's podcast. This is a thinking person's podcast. It's designed to get you thinking about these things. Any any good history course would do that, not just be a lecture series. And some of you might disagree with me. You know, some of you might say, well, this can't happen again today because we have checks and balances. Well, you know, checks and balances are only as good as the people who are watching over them. You know, checks and balances require administration. They require a watchful eye. And who's the watchful eye? Well, it's us. I spoke about it at the beginning of this podcast, you know, when it comes to uh, defending this country. You, know, you don't just send soldiers overseas, you know, as because Veterans Day is coming up, I mentioned this. You don't just send soldiers overseas to fight wars and defend the country. The country needs to be defended here in the actual country itself, within its borders, against a lot of things, but including bad ideas. I mentioned on a prior podcast that the Supreme Court declared a portion of the income tax in the 1890s unconstitutional. 1895 Supreme Court case. That was people, and, and that, that, that ruling never would have happened if somebody hadn't have brought a case. Somebody brought a case because they felt like their rights were being oppressed, and they were. They were right. The Supreme Court agreed with them, and frankly speaking, I agree with them, based on everything that I've read about it. That was the watchful eye, a citizen, watchful eye, keeping an eye on what was going on, making sure that the checks and balances were actually working. That's, that's what we all need to do. Checks and balances, people. That's, that's our responsibility. It's not just the responsibility of the three branches of government the legislative, judicial, and executive. It's not just their responsibility. We are responsible for that as well. Continuing on. Uh, we're going to talk about now, we're going we're to get into the colonies, and or, interestingly enough, we're going to read a document from 1647, the exact same time frame as these civil wars that were going on in England. We're, but this document comes from Massachusetts, and it's called The Laws and Liberties of Massachusetts. And there's a number of sections here I'm going to read, and the first section here has to do with deputies for the general court. Quote, that henceforth no town shall send more than two deputies to the general court, though the number of freemen in any town be more than twenty, and that all towns which have not 
to the number twenty freemen shall send but one deputy, and such towns have not ten freemen shall send none. But such freemen shall vote with the next town in choice of their deputy, or deputies, till this court takes further order. End quote. And this is one of those confusing ones for people in the modern day, unless, of course, you live in Massachusetts. It, it refers to their general assembly as a, quote, general court, end quote. Did you hear that section where it says, quote, that henceforth no town shall send more than two deputies to the general court, end quote. Did you know that the Massachusetts legislature still to this day is called the general court of Massachusetts? That's interesting. This goes all the way back to the 1600s. Still called to this day the general court of Massachusetts. Go to their website, and I actually looked at it. It's still there, still called the general court of Massachusetts. I'm sure some people just refer to it as the, legis the state legislature, perhaps, but its formal name is the general court of Massachusetts. So, again, we're talking about a Congress, a parliament, an assembly. It's all the same kind of thing. And what's why is this important as far as selecting deputies to the general court? Remember that Massachusetts is kind of the prime target for the king in the Intolerable Acts. This establishes that the people of Massachusetts, since it since the 1600s, were very, very used to selecting their own local people, their freemen, to go to the general court, a.k.a. the legislature. This is what they did. And to have the king come in a hundred and some years later and start mucking around in this was, 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 was messing around with over 100 years of tradition. And now you can begin to see how they felt like their rights were being trampled upon. These people had been doing these local assemblies or organized the way that they decided to do it locally for over 100 years, and the king comes in and says, we're going to change this up. Oh, really? You're, 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 Mr. Drunk on Power, Mr. I Need to Go to Rehab, you're going to come in here and you're going you're gonna to change this up now? Not on my watch, says Sam Adams, says John Adams, says George Washington. Not on my watch. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. That's not an exact quote from the, the aforementioned individuals. I mean, let's, let's go back and read this section from the uh, Massachusetts Government Act of 1774. Quote, Be it enacted that from and after August 1st, 1774, no meeting shall be called by the selectmen or at the request of any number of freeholders of any township, district, or precinct without leave of the governor or in his absence of the lieutenant governor in writing, expressing the special business of the said meeting, except the annual meeting of the months of March in the months of March or May, for the choice of selectmen, constables, and other officers, or except for the choice of persons to fill up the offices aforesaid, end quote. Okay, so again, th this is the king micromanaging. You know, when, when, he, when he tried to, th that was just the beginning, as they saw it. Understand, it wasn't total control over absolutely every aspect of the local councils, the general court, etc. But you can see how the Founding Fathers would have seen the, the Intolerable Acts of 1774, namely the interference in, in selecting of counselors and, and assistants and all the rest of it, as, as being just the beginning of some kind of slippery slope where the, the, the king is really going to start digging in and taking over the local government of Massachusetts. That's basically where they were driving to with this thing and why the Founding Fathers were getting so upset. And they really began to feel the pressure on their general court and their assemblies being brought down from the king and from the parliament in Great Britain. Uh, this control that they wanted to have over things local. When, according to, again, these documents that we read from 1647, Laws and Liberties of Massachusetts, these people were used to running that show by, for themselves, for the most part. And now this was slowly being grabbed away from them. Let's continue on reading uh, another section on juries and jurors. And this is actually referring to uh, judicial courts, as I understand it. 
Quote, It is ordered by this court and authority thereof that the constable and every town upon process from the recorder of each court shall give timely notice to the freemen in their town to choose so many able discreet men as the process shall direct which men to choose he shall warn to attend the court whereto they are appointed. End quote. And continuing on, quote, which men so chosen shall be impaneled and sworn truly to try betwixt party and party, who shall find the matter of fact which the damages and costs according to their evidence, and the judges shall declare the sentence according to the law. End quote. So it's actually talking about how a jury is supposed to be selected. And why is this section important? Why am I talking to you from, and again, this is from the uh, 1647 Laws and Liberties of Massachusetts. Why is this concept of jury trial and the selection of juries so important? This demonstrates to you that they, that the, again, the people of Massachusetts are very used to having their local trials under their local juries selected from the freemen of the town, right? Quote, it is ordered by this court and authority thereof that the constable of every town upon process from the recorder of each court shall give timely notice to the freemen of their town to choose so many able discreet men as the process shall direct which men so chosen he shall warn to attend the court whereto they are appointed, end quote. It's jury selection from the freemen. So remember when the Intolerable Acts of 1774 came around and the king decided that he was going to declare that in some cases he might take a trial out of the colony of Massachusetts and try it in some other count in some other colony, or remove the trial back to Britain to have the, the trial there, thus removing the local process, eliminating the local jury process, eliminating the local court process for trying people as had been done for a very long time in the colony of Massachusetts. In clear violation of what the people of Massachusetts refer to as their, quote, laws and liberties of Massachusetts, end quote. From 1647. So you can see again how the colonists began to see their began to see their rights being violated, their liberties, their laws that had governed Massachusetts for quite some time now now being meddled in by the king without really much of any consideration whatsoever for the rights of the people of Massachusetts and what they wanted, what the, how they wanted to actually do this. Okay. So I, I, I think at this point, you know, we're going to have to set where this is going to have to launch into an episode two because this episode is getting a little bit long. And um, so episode two of this uh, taxation without representation, which is probably going to be the title of this podcast episode, uh, is going to finish this up. We've still got to talk about some laws from Virginia. We're going to talk about uh, some Pennsylvania laws and liberties and some other things, and we're gonna then we're gonna wrap up our, our conversation here. Because if I continue on going over this, we're gonna be well over probably an hour uh, of this podcast, and I don't like to do that. Again, mostly for uh, time considerations for uh, you folks. And if you if you don't mind the the podcast being longer than an hour, leave a review on this podcast, or go over to the Patreon side of things, do a subscription, and. Tell me what you think about my podcasting generally, and you can tell me there as well. It's it's whichever option is most uh, convenient for you, or whichever one you want to choose. Uh, it's entirely up to you, and I can I can modify the podcast accordingly. We can go a little bit longer in some of these episodes if you don't want to wait for episode two. But you know, typically episode two drops a few days after episode one, obviously, because these things happen typically on Sundays and Wednesdays is when I drop episodes. And again, this uh, this Wednesday we may may not drop an episode. I don't know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see how that works out if I have the time to actually edit everything before we get to Wednesday. 
Uh, it'll either be one of two things will happen. Either I'll drop the episode a day late and it'll happen on Thursday, or th- probably late, late Thursday. So it might as well be, might as well say Friday. Or alternatively, I'll drop something on Wednesday. Uh, something as kind of an intermission, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, to give you folks uh, some content on the typical Wednesday podcast. I'll, I'll figure out what I'm going to do in that regard. But with that said, let's wrap up today's episode in the next section. Let's go. All right. Again, we talked today about the Magna Carta. The agreement of the people from uh, 1647 to roughly 1649, and also the 1647 Laws and Liberties of Massachusetts. And what we've talked about today is the framework that the colonists were working off of for their complaints about what the Parliament in Britain and what the King of Britain were doing at this particular period in time. It's established that there is historically just cause for having a council in between the people and the king who's levying the taxes, whatever those may be, and it changes throughout history. So there's some kind of a a buffer there, and that is to say a general council, assembly, congress, parliament, legislature, etc. Okay, and we've established that the people of Massachusetts were used to having their own laws created by their own local councils and basically their own local parliament, so to speak, but their own general council uh, and assembly in Massachusetts. That's where their laws governing the colony were largely created regarding you know, jury trial, and all the rest of it. And they didn't believe that they were represented in Parliament in Britain. Their representation was in the colony itself, in Massachusetts, where they had the ability to elect people to represent them and to select their representation. They didn't have the ability to select anybody in Parliament for their representation. So clearly they didn't see themselves as being represented there. So when they start levying taxes and when they start bringing about these intolerable acts, the colonists see it as there is no buffer in between that king and that parliament and the people themselves in Massachusetts. They don't have a representative assembly effectively providing some input into the process. They just don't. And then when the intolerable acts come along and they start changing up some of this uh, some of this selection of some of these people in the colonies to represent and to administer the colonies, and when they when the intolerable acts start changing up how jury trial, historically how the laws in Massachusetts govern jury trial and all the rest of it for people charged with crimes, whatever those may be. Obviously, they the people of Massachusetts felt like, again, their laws were being subverted and the uh, the assemblies, their legislature through which these laws are created that govern the uh, the colonies were being undermined by this distant power where they had no representation. And on the next episode, on episode 11, we're going to be talking about taxes specifically. And we're going to move beyond the the actual framework that we've talked about here, and we're going to get into specifically taxes and how the colonies, how the colonists addressed that in regards to the aforementioned framework. So, get ready for that. And again, uh, as Veterans Day approaches, big thank you to the veterans out there who uh, serve the country, and I hope everybody remembers them. And... Also, the veterans that came long before us uh, from the Revolutionary War and onward who uh, helped us have the Constitution that we have today and really honored the Declaration of Independence uh, with their with their sacrifice in various wars. And with that said, thank you for listening to this podcast. It was great having you uh, with us, and I look forward to the next one. I'll see you there. Until then, this is Roman signing out. Thank you. <laughs>